Welcome to the October 2019 edition of Beef Monthly. I'm Dr. Ron Lemonager, Beef Extension Specialist in the Department of Animal Science at Purdue University. And here's a sneak peek of this month's topics. In headline news, we'll spend a little time discussing does eating four pounds of beef equal a flight from New York City to London? And will alternative proteins take over the meat case? In consumer focus, we're going to talk about food safety with Dr. Stacy Zelli. In producer spotlight, we'll talk to Kelly Sheese from northern Indiana. We have a special feature this month on World Antibiotic Week with Jeff Leininger. In timely production and management tips, we'll talk about farm safety with Dr. Bill Field, low-quality forages, prussic acid, cautions when grazing crop residues, the fall breeding season, and deworming after a killing frost. And ask Dr. Ron, what could lameness what could be causing lameness in all four feet? Upcoming events and programs, we've got a Purdue Calving School, Hoosier Beef Congress, and Heartland Grazing Conference. We begin this month's headline news with an interesting news story dealing with a rebuttal to a story that was published the last week of September in New Yorker magazine about Dr. Pat Brown, the founder of Impossible Foods. If readers scan the headline, and subheadline, they will get the gist of what author Tad Friend is trying to say. And I quote, Can a plant-based burger help solve climate change? Eating meat creates huge environmental costs. Impossible Foods thinks it has a solution. End quote. In the article, Mr. Friend writes, and I quote, Every four pounds of beef you eat contribute to as much global warming as flying from New York to London, the average American eats that much each month. End quote. Dr. Frank Mittenhotner, professor and air quality specialist and director of the CLEAR Center in the Department of Animal Science, University of California, and Dr. Darren Hudson, professor and Combest Endowed Chair and director of International Center for Agricultural Competitiveness in the Department of Agricultural and Applied Economics, at Texas Tech University, wrote a rebuttal article to dispel these thoughts. Mr. Friend is citing from the work of Tim Searchinger of Princeton University and the World Resources Institute. It suggests all one needs to do to hop on a transatlantic flight with a clear conscience is to forego a few weeks' worth of burgers. Professor Searchinger asserts that refor foresting of all grazing lands and giving up three-quarters of beef and dairy products would reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by 20%. Drs. Middlehontner and Hudson say this is just another example of misleading data that is misinforming readers and even worse, perhaps even affecting public policy in a way that is detrimental to us and to our planet. They say that four pounds of beef in the United States does not equal the greenhouse gas emissions per passenger of a flight from New York to London. Their calculations, in contrast, say that CO2 emissions are less than one-twentieth those reported by the New, York, the New Yorker article when, compared, when comparing 88 versus 1,980 pounds of emissions per four pounds of beef the large difference in results comes from the fact that Professor Searchinger's work uses a global emission number for beef production, 
not the emission number of U.S. beef production. The most comprehensive life cycle assessment for U.S. beef was recently conducted by a USDAA ARS team led by Dr. Al Rotz at Penn State University. The team found that U.S. beef is responsible for only 3.7% of the total American greenhouse gas emissions, not the 14 to 18% most often cited in the media. It should be noted that the EPA says that U.S. beef contributes only about 2% of greenhouse gases. Doctors Mittenhautner and Hudson say that using a global number to represent U.S. animal agriculture is a disservice to not only American farmers, who are, by the way, most efficient in the world, but also members of the American public who are making lifestyle choices based on the research they perceive to be correct. They go on to say that this is also a disservice to the Americans who expect that meaningful changes are being implemented to reduce climate pollutants. It is an unquestioned fact by most experts, as well as by the EPA, that fossil fuel intensive sectors, such as transportation, power, and industry, emit approximately 80% of the total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. The plastic straw, light bulb, burger discussion that is frequently touted as a meaningful climate change solution seems to be a smokescreen to sidetrack from the major polluters. They concluded that maybe, just maybe, American farmers and ranchers deserve some credit for efficiencies that for decades have decreased greenhouse gas emissions while improving food production at unprecedented levels. In a related topic, Hannah Thompson Weeman from the Animal Agricultural Alliance participated in the Wall Street Journal's Global Food Forum in New York City. This event always features a fast-paced agenda packed with speakers ready to dive into the most pressing issues facing the food industry and what food and agriculture might look like in the future. This year, several farmers had seats at the table. Hard farmer Wanda Patchy represented farmers on a panel from about the farm economy. The NCBA president and beef producer Jennifer Houston tackled the issue of alternative proteins and food labels. And dairy farmer and veterinarian Don Niles discussed sustainability and water quality. Hannah reports that one topic that continued to come up in various sessions was alternative protein sources, from plant-based burgers to cell-cultured meat. Alternative proteins seem to be a hot topic, and if you only read the media headlines, you'd think that they're poised to take over the meat case. Attendees at the Global Food Foreman say that's not really the case. In an audience poll, attendees were asked for their thoughts of how the new wave plant-based burgers will change food. The majority of the audience answered, quote, be niche players like other veggie burgers, unquote, at 40%, or get real market share but stall at 35%. Virtually no one selected that the, uh, the meat case was going to be decimated from these new products. It's important for all of us in animal agriculture and meat production to make sure we're not adding to the hype of these plant-based products by disparaging them as a food choice. 
They present an option in the marketplace that may appeal to a certain segment of the consumers. But most shoppers remain motivated by factors like taste, price, and convenience. We should focus on ensuring we retain our competitive edge in those areas and dedicate efforts to innovate to make sure we're meeting the demands of consumers who want to explore new food options. Consumers who do, not, who do turn to plant-based options may do so out of concern for environmental sustainability or animal welfare. We have a great story to tell in those areas and can gain more consumer confidence by addressing concerns rather than denigrating other food options. Most consumers probably have no idea that America's beef producers since 1977 have decreased their carbon footprint by 18%, land use by 34%, and water use by 14%, or that the Beef Quality Assurance Program is in place to address food safety, animal well-being, environmental stewardship, worker safety, and public health. Additionally, the Journal of the American Dietetics Association says that beef is the number one source of protein, zinc, and B12, the number two source of selenium, the number three source of iron, and B6, phosphorus, niacin, and potassium, and number four source of riboflavin. Amplifying these messages will help reassure consumers that beef is an ethical protein choice that is unmatched nutritionally and it also tastes great. In this segment, let's talk a little bit about cross-contamination. You know, as you prepare meals, and this is Dr. Stacy Zelli, Extension Meat Science Specialist here at Purdue. Stacy, let's talk a little bit about cross-contamination from the standpoint of, you know, as people get ready, you know, a meal ready, you know, I've, I've heard of people, you know, taking this, for example, this hamburger, you know, and popping it in their mouth. You yeah. Know? <laughs> uh, you know, doing the hamburger and then coming back and cutting their lettuce mm -hmm. or or maybe it's a chicken that they're they're cutting up or whatever and talk about that cross-contamination issue and it's a great point because honestly it's one of those things that people are just kind of careless about it they don't think about it when the raw meat's not on it you might not remember that the last thing you've had on it was raw meat and so once you put raw meat on a surface whether it be on a surface or with a few utensils or anything like that or if you touch it with your hands you need to make sure you wash it you need to make sure you address that so um, you know when you're taking things out to the grill or something like that um, whether you put a piece of cellophane over the, the plate before you go out there or you just take the plate back and make sure you get it washed. Um, but, you know, that's a really common one where people take raw meat out to the grill, they cook the meat, and then they put the meat right back on the, the platter where the raw was at. Um, the other one that we were mentioning before is I've seen people that insist on, like, using their spatula or using their tongs with that raw meat to put it on the grill. I'm like, just pick it up and put it on there because now you've made these dirty and they need to be cleaned. Um, spatula is the same thing. Yep, spatula is the exact same thing. Another one is, um, you know, if you're using any kind of seasoning, I always make sure if I'm using seasoning, I have one hand that stays dirty and one hand that I can put in my seasoning. Because right now I've been touching this raw meat. If I were to pick this up, now my salt that's just going to go back in the cupboard has got mess on the outside of it. It could or could not be dangerous, but it's the why risk it. Um, and so one thing that's nice is if you've got different cutting boards um, at home, multiple cutting boards, I have tons. I always make sure that I have ones when I'm cooking a meal, this is the ones I'm going to put the meat on, these are the ones I'm going to do the fruit and vegetables on. Um, because, yeah, we've seen a lot of outbreaks in, in uh, restaurants and things like that where uh, – 
it was something in the salad bar where the vegetables got put on there with lettuce that got cut up. You should put lettuce. And so it got cut on the same cutting board that meat was on, and next thing you know, you have somebody get sick. So sometimes just having that kind of foresight and that, that forethought to say, okay, I put raw meat on this. This is raw now. I have to treat it raw until I get it cleaned. And the other part of it is, is that once we heat this, okay, yeah. well, there might have been something there. Exactly. The fact that we, we cooked it. It's okay, to yeah. 145 to mm-hmm. 165, depending on which cut. Right. In this case, it'd be about 160, 165, right? right. With burgers, yes. It's safe. Right. And then right. as soon as you put it on something that's not, you totally de- you, you destroyed it. Exactly. You defeated your purpose. So, yeah. Stacy, thank you. You're very welcome. This month, we're going to do a special feature uh, on the world. Antibiotic Awareness Week, which is coming up November 18th to 24th, and was created by the 68th World Health Organization Assembly in May of 2015, with one key objective to improve awareness and understanding of antimicrobial resistance through effective communication, education, and training. Joining us today is Jeff Leininger from Merck Animal Health. Jeff, Thank you for joining us to talk about antibiotic use and what the beef industry is doing to ensure that our beef consumers can have confidence that beef products are safe, healthy, and wholesome. Let's begin this discussion by talking a bit about what antibiotic use in food animal agriculture is. Well, thank you for having me. First off, the World Antibiotic Awareness Week serves as a reminder of judicious use of antibiotics, not only for humans, but livestock producers as well. It's a great time of year for specifically for livestock producers to take the time to review their treatment protocols and the products with their local veterinarian. So how can we continually reduce antibiotic use in, in the beef industry? Well, utilization of preventative medicine strategies, such as a complete and comprehensive vaccine protocol, is one way. And taking the time to develop these protocols with your local veterinarian Secondly, utilizing resources to develop a deworming strategy that helps uh, eliminate the parasites that uh, ultimately can cause implications in the animal's immune system and their ability to respond to vaccines. And last but not least important is work with uh, your nutritionist to ensure a proper diet formulation. You know, and we know that, you know, vitamins and minerals and energy and the protein that we put in some of these rations is really key to the immune function and how those animals respond to antibiotics uh, when we get there. But more importantly, before we get there, the vaccines that will actually help prevent some of the diseases which would minimize the antibiotic use. Would you agree with that? Uh, Absolutely. And, And certainly from an economic standpoint, preventative medicine is much less expensive than uh, using antibiotics in a treatment situation as well. So, Jeff, the the Food and Drug Administration has created two guidance documents. One of them is number 120, the other one's 213, for the use of antibiotics in animal feeds that's been published in the Federal Register. So what's the significance of this final rule on the beef industry and, and how that can give consumers confidence in our product? These rules uh, tighten down the guidance and oversight on the antibiotic use in the beef industry, specifically the 
VFD, which is a veterinary feed directive, um, now requires of veterinarians oversight and involvement in all feed grade antibiotics. So they must issue a prescription in order for the uh, producer to use antibiotics. So this uh, requires what we call VCPR, so veterinary client patient relationships. So veterinarian must know firsthand what's going on in the farm, how the products are being used, and specifically which animals are being treated. So, so we've, we've just now talked about uh, the feed-through type of antibiotics. What about the injectables, okay, that we might use in terms of um, for animals that, that come down with some disease symptoms? How are those regulated, and how can consumers be confident that, that those are being used correctly? Sure. So, so the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, has jurisdiction over the injectable uh, antibiotics. They set withdrawal times based on research to ensure antibiotics have cleared the animal system before it enters the food supply. Secondly, USDA Food Safety and Inspection Service routinely tests food to ensure it's free from antibiotic residues. Uh, thirdly, the American Veterinary Medical Association antibiotics that are medically important to humans must be administered under direct veterinary supervision. And lastly, the Center for Disease Control, or CDC, is working to reduce antibiotic use in humans and says at least 30% of antibiotics prescribed in U.S. doctors' offices and emergency rooms are unnecessary. So, so let, let's, let's kind of pursue that line of thought here for just a second. And, you know, so when we have a, a sick animal, what's our responsibility as producers uh, to keep those animals as healthy and as productive as possible? What can we do there? Well, as you're, as you're aware, there's a lot of different antibiotics and several different classes and modes of actions and the way they work and on specific bacterial pathogens. So most importantly is utilizing the most effective class of antibiotic for the specific bacterial pathogen plays an important role in not only the overall effectiveness of the treatment, but the amount of antibiotic needed to treat the animal and also the reduces the time of the recovery needed for the animal as well. So from a management perspective, what can producers do to reduce the need for antibiotics? Well, we discussed vaccinating. Um, certainly preconditioning programs have helped lower the overall dependency on antibiotics. The low-stress animal handling, in some cases using the prebiotic or probiotics, have had their place in helping animals stay healthy and preventing them from ending up in those hospital pens where ultimately the antibiotics are needed. Jeff, any final thoughts on how producers can engage in this public discussion, okay, about the role of antibiotics in, in production animals? When speaking to the public, I, I tend to use analogies that are relatable to their understanding. So as an example, when we have sick children, we take them to the doctor for examination. Uh, likewise, when we have sick animals, we put them uh, through an examination process, too. Uh, we make decisions with assistance of our local veterinarians when to treat with antibiotic and which antibiotic to use based on disease uh, that we're treating. It's our responsibility is, from an animal well-being standpoint, 
to care for sick animals and do our best to help them recover from illness. So to further carry out this analogy, you know, doctors may prescribe antibiotics uh, for our children to also help them recover from illness once they complete the examination process. It's also important in human health to reduce the overprescription or misuse of antibiotics. And, you know, as you can see, there's a lot of similarities between animal and, and human medicine. Hey, Jeff, thank you so much for helping us understand what antibiotic use is in the industry and how we're using it and how we're trying to reduce uh, the use of antibiotics. But more importantly, that we continually strive to produce a consistently uh, safe, healthy, and wholesome beef product for our consumers. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. We begin this month's edition of Timely Production and Management Tips with a message from Dr. Bill Fields, Farm Safety Specialist from Agricultural and Biological Engineering here at Purdue University. One of the most aggressive pieces of uh, machinery that uh, is associated with farming is the power drive line that's found on most powered equipment today. And as every year we have farmers who are caught in this uh, drive shaft or the drive line and results in very serious injuries, including spinal cord injuries, amputations, head injuries, and they're often uh, ser serious enough that the farmer has to discontinue farming. One of the primary reasons for that is that the farmer, for one reason or another, removes the shielding, exposing the shaft underneath that is very aggressive and can easily uh, entangle clothing or hair. And so we, we see examples here of a, of a, a, on the front of the power drive line or the PTO shaft where a farmer has cut off the protective shielding in order to access the, uh, uh, the, the components underneath and then never return, replaces it. And then also here's a master shield that's around the stub shaft of the tractor. It doesn't belong in my hands, it belongs on a tractor. And so for some reason this was removed off of a piece of equipment and it's right on there, it uh, points out some of the warnings related to drive lines, but it was easier for the farmer to remove the shield, to, to work on it, or to, to attach the PTO, and that leaves the shaft exposed and extremely dangerous to the operator. Now this drive line is fully shielded. It has a master shield in place that protects the, the, the stub shaft and the front yoke of the, of the drive line. It's, it's fully shielded around the yoke, and as it turns, everything is protected, and, you, and it's, it allows the shaft to turn free inside while the outside protective shield remains stationary. Some of them you will find with chains that will support the, um, the shield from turning, but that is not required in all cases. But this full length of the driveline is fully protected, so even if someone were to incidentally come up against it, it's not going to... Um, cause an entanglement. Our recommendation, however, is that whenever you're working on a piece of machinery, turn off the drive line so you're not exposed to the potential for entanglement. Our concern is how many farmers out there across the state have removed part or all of this shielding for one reason or another, it gotten damaged or they needed to make repairs to it, and never replaced it, and it exposes them to the potential for entanglement. I have five other timely tips that I'd like to share. The first one is 
because of the growing season that we had that early this year, forage quality is very, very poor quality in many places. And our recommendation is, is that you get your forages analyzed for nutrient profiles, inventory your hay supplies, and develop a supplementation strategy that's going to be cost effective. The second one is that in many areas of the state, we've already had at least a frost, if not a killing frost. That brings up the issue of prussic acid, and particularly in the sorghum and sorghum sedan families. If you've had a frost, make sure that you let those plants dissipate the cyanide that will accumulate in the, in the cells after a freeze. We typically recommend that producers wait seven days prior to baling that hay or grazing that hay, okay, to allow dissipation. New shoots, if you don't have a killing frost and you just get a setback, if the new shoots that begin to grow at the bottom of the plant can be a challenge, okay, with high levels of cyanide. If producers are cutting it, and putting it into either a wrapped bale, a high moisture bale, or as baleage, or as haylage, then uh, the fermentation should take care of any accumulation of cyanide. The third point is really deals with grazing and harvesting of crop residues. For those producers that are short on forage supply, corn stalks, for example, can be an economical alternative to feeding hay. If you're going to graze corn stalks, make sure that you look for eardrops, scout the fields and look for eardrop to make sure that cows won't overconsume any dropped ears and end up with acidosis. If you have a lot of eardrop, the recommendation is, is that you adjust these cattle to a corn containing diet using supplements uh, prior to turnout. Uh, another part of grazing corn stalks really deals with um, spilled grain, okay, where maybe the combine overshot the grain cart or the grain cart overshot the, the semi. If you have piles of grain, you probably need to think about getting those things picked up because the cows will really hone in on those piles of grain. The same thing is true if you're grazing soybean fields. We've had cases where producers have spilled some soybeans and we've had some challenges with cows, okay, from a rumen function perspective. Um, the other part of grazing uh, corn fields and soybean fields is that if you apply fertilizer, make sure that you don't have any piles of fertilizer that cattle could consume. A lot of these fertilizers contain a salt uh, and cattle are kind of attracted to it. And the fourth uh, management tip that needs to be discussed is uh, the fall breeding season. For those of you that are entering into that season here somewhere around uh, Thanksgiving time, now is a great time to get your bulls breeding soundness evaluated. Um, even though those bulls may have worked in the, at the past season, doesn't necessarily mean that those bulls are working now. So get your bulls tested for breeding soundness evaluation. Uh, we still have a little bit of time if you've got thin cows. Now is not a bad time to 
you know, ask those cows to pick up a little condition that may mean some additional supplementation or some higher quality forage. And my fifth management tip really deals with deworming the cow herd. Uh, after you get a killing frost this fall, and that would be a great time to think about uh, treating for uh, internal parasites. And that's a wrap on this month's management tips. Joining us today in Producer Focus is Kelly Sheese, a beef producer from Larwell, Indiana, in Whitley County, kind of up there in that northeast mm -hmm. portion of the state, a member of the Indiana Beef Cattle Association a Board of Directors, and a freelance marketing, leadership development, and communication facilitator working with nonprofit organizations. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us thank today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk a little bit about your diversified family farm. Sure. We farm about a 1,000 acres on a family farming operation in northwest Whitley County. We grow corn, soybeans, wheat, and hay. We have a 600 sow fair-to-finish hog operation, as well as 75 brood cows, both commercial and purebred, where we produce club calves, breeding stock, and feeder cattle. Awesome. Hey, I know that you've been heavily engaged at the local level and, and issues that have come up. Uh, in, in your county, uh, as, long, as well as kind of working on with the Indiana Beef Cattle uh, Board of Directors. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me a little bit about how your membership in the Beef Cattle Association has benefited you and your operations. I think there's really three key words, Ron, and that's connected, informed, and advocate. IBCA really works for producers. It benefits us while we're home on our operations, to have qualified staff and producer leadership to be a voice for us, not only at the state level, but at the national level on legislative, regulatory, and production issues. Membership allows us to be on that front line for information we might need. Um, it also, once again, helps us to have that voice or garner that information when we're facing maybe challenges with our operation or at the regulatory level to have that inside track on how we can communicate with our legislators, but also to be on the front line of timely issues and needs, such as being informed of BQA and other things that help us to be successful as producers. You know, and you know, as producers, we can't be everywhere, yeah. okay? But the Indiana Beef Cattle Association and the National Cattlemen's Association are kind of fighting our battles for us every day. Exactly, exactly. When you invest as a member in the Indiana Beef Cattle Association, the return on investment is the comfort in knowing that you are being represented not just at the state or in your region, but also nationally. So um, when a lot of issues that affect our industry that we need that support, your membership dollars are a, a very excellent investment for having that voice heard at both the state and national level. At, at the uh, board of directors level that mm -hmm. you sit on, okay, and i fortunate enough to also sit on there mm -hmm. as kind of the representative from Purdue Animal Science, what, what do you think we need to accomplish this year or maybe in the next couple of years with the Beef Cattle Association for our membership? I think communication is key, um, getting the word out and information and the benefits of, of being a member. But I also, one of the things I've realized as a member for um, well over a dozen years and participating on the board 
is how it allows us to connect with other producers. We don't leave our farm very often, but when we do, it's some of the opportunities that Indiana Beef provides. So it's not only Hoosier Beef Congress, it's field days, it's the regional beef meetings, which are usually right in your backyard, it's state fair, and other events that Indiana Beef hosts that allows us to connect and communicate with producers. I think in, in 2020, as we move forward, certainly continuing the strong success of representing and advocating for the beef industry. And one of our most important assets is our youth and continuing to support them because they're the future of our industry, as well as, of course, increasing membership. I think if you raise cattle in Indiana, it's a wise investment to be a member of the Indiana Beef Cattle Association. Well, and you know, uh, you're being a little bit humble. Uh, you, you've kind of chaired and, and worked with the communications committee. Okay, it's kind of an ad hoc committee, but you know, Beef Monthly is an example of something that, that you are heavily involved in getting started. Um, and so kudos to you and, and, and the rest of the board for accepting the idea of, of Beef Monthly as, a, as another vehicle to communicate with our producers and our members. Exactly. I think if you're watching this today, I encourage you to share it with your fellow producers as well as look at some of the other communications venues that we have. Um, we're working closely with auction markets. We'll continue to do that to show the benefits of not only membership but of advocating for our product as well as the Indiana Beef Magazine and uh, the emails that come out with timely information on news as well as what you'll find here in the Beef Monthly Updates. Beef at a Glance is another one. Exactly. So, exactly. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ron. appreciate it. In this month's Ask Dr. Ron, we received a call from a producer that had a small herd of beef cows that was having lameness and tenderness issues. So the question really is, what's causing my cow to have tenderness on all four feet. Initially, it was only one cow, but that cow was followed by a second cow and subsequently the bull. The veterinarian was called, and the veterinary diagnosis was that there was no identifiable injuries or diseases present. The veterinarian recommended that banamine be given, which is an anti-inflammatory, and also an analgesic to reduce pain. We followed that with a farm visit. The feet and legs of the cattle were again evaluated, and the hoof head was warm to the touch, but there was no swelling. Grain was not being fed, so we eliminated the idea that maybe there was some founder going on. We did a pasture walk, and what we did is we walked through a wooded pasture with a small creek, and the cattle had been there for the better part of the last month. The producer noted that the cattle had spent considerably more time in those woods and in the, the creek bottom than normal. We observed that pastures were predominantly overgrazed bluegrass and fescue. Now realize that this is late summer and the heat and dry conditions probably con contributed to the overgrazing situation. Numerous weed species were evident and some of these plants had been grazed. We identified weeds in the nightshade and amaranth families, smartweed, and with lesser amounts of pokeweed and other weed species. What my concern was as we evaluated the pastures is that the alkaloids produced by some of these plants along with fescue and maybe ergot containing cool season grasses 
cause a vasoconstriction of the blood vessels, which re reduce blood flow, particularly to the extremities. It's really hard to make a definitive diagnosis for the lameness in this situation, but I strongly suspected that the alkaloids in the forage species being consumed were causing the problem. My recommendations were number one, remove the cattle from that wooded creek paddock. Number two, feed hay to dilute and eliminate alkaloids that may be causing the potential problem. Number three, it had just rained and we would expect that the forages would start to recover, okay, the, the desirable species of grasses and legumes. So my recommendation was to continue to feed hay to allow pastures to recover to reduce the potential for weed consumption. And number four, develop a spray technology or spray technique or uh, strategy to spray those pastures for weeds but make sure that they follow label directions for any grazing restrictions depending on the product used. As a follow-up, I just received an email notification from that producer and the initially lame cow was now completely recovered and it was gaining weight. The second cow and the bull had improved significantly and are gaining weight. The bottom line is that weeds can become a problem when environmental conditions limit desirable grasses and legumes from growing, such as during the heat and dry conditions that we oftentimes see in the late summer season. Important management considerations to minimize toxic weed intake are number one, do a pasture walk and identify potentially toxic weeds, and especially when pastures are overgrazed. Number two, control when and where cattle graze depending on what you observe in those pastures and particularly along the creek bottoms and in wooded areas. Number three, manage pastures in a rotational grazing system that allows the desirable species of grasses and legumes to recover following each grazing cycle. And number four, use appropriate weed control measures. That may be herbicides, it may be mechanical uh, mowing, or whatever. The good news is that the producer and, and their cows are well on their way to recovery. And that's our wrap on Ask Dr. Ron. In upcoming events and programs, the Purdue University College of Veterinary Medicine will host a calving school for beef and dairy producers on the Purdue campus Saturday, November 23rd from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Topics covered at the school include managing dystocias, postpartum cow care, and newborn calf management. Registration fee is $25, and for more information on this program as well as the Hoosier Beef Congress, and the Heartland Grazing Conference can be found in the show notes below. So let me introduce uh, Dr. Keith Johnson to talk about the Heartland Grazing Conference. Good day. This is Keith Johnson. I am the Purdue Extension Forage Specialist. And there's a meeting that's coming up, the Heart of America Grazing Conference, that's going to be held the evening of October 29 and during the day on the 30th. 
this is uh, an opportunity for you to attend a great conference. Uh, Kentucky is the host state this year. Uh, the day of the 30th is one that you can attend. One does not have to attend the evening of the 29th to participate. The conference location is in Burlington, Kentucky, which is very near Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, the theme of this year's conference is Kicking the Hay Habit, Optimizing Profitability. The featured speaker is one that if you've not heard him before, if you want to get uh, a second take, is an excellent speaker, Dr. Jim Garrish. He is a consultant with the American Grazing Lands Services. I think one of the neat things about Jim is the fact he is the individual that coined the term management intensive grazing many, many years ago. And I think it's still a, a great term that we can think about in terms of managing intensively our grazing program. Other speakers that uh, will be at the conference will address topics about ways to extend the grazing season. This is just a great opportunity to network with producers, agribusiness personnel, researchers, and educators that have an interest in livestock and forages. In show notes directly below this particular video is the registration information that's required for you to participate in the Heart of America Grazing Conference held again October 29 and 30, Burlington, Kentucky. Welcome to Beef Monthly. My name is Matt Clays, Beef Cattle Extension Specialist and Livestock Judging Team Coach here at Purdue University. And we're really fortunate to have Barry Wessner here to talk about the Hoosier Beef Congress, big event that we have the first part of December. Very welcome and, and thanks for being here. And what are the dates for the event this year? Uh, December 4th through the 8th, obviously the, you know, the cattle show being the 7th and 8th there on Saturday and Sunday. Now prior to the event, uh, a number of years ago, we started the stall auction. Uh, it's going to be a little earlier this year, November the 12th on uh, Willoughby Auctions uh, online. And uh, to answer your question about the proceeds, uh, we've always used 50% of those proceeds to help the actual cost of running the Hoosier Beef Congress, uh, try to maybe uh, lighten the load for entry fees and so on and so forth. And then the other half of those, for years and years, they were given to a worthy charity uh, chosen by uh, oh, a combination of the IBCA board and the Hoosier Beef Congress Committee. And uh, But starting this last year, uh, they've taken that other 50% of those funds and they've divided it in half. And they this last year, I think they awarded four scholarships totaling $5,000. And we start up then Saturday morning. Uh, with the livestock judging contest, which we usually have a large group of, of people uh, there that I, I'm kind of in, in charge of, but also in the morning, uh, the sales going on. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, the sales starting? You bet. Uh, uh, that Saturday morning, it's the, it's the crunch time for all of us down there. we got lots of stuff going on. As you mentioned, your judging contest, uh, the Indiana Junior Beef Cattle Kids uh, kick off their silent auction that morning. Uh, the trade shows in full force, and the all-star uh, uh, heifer and breed sales start there in the south end of the cattle barn. And now the cattle shows uh, then are going to be on Saturday afternoon and Sunday. Uh, who are the judges that you've got selected for this uh, year? We're very, very uh, excited uh, with our judge selections this year. On the steer side of things, we've got Spencer Scotton, a young man that hails from Missouri, just took the judging t uh, team coaching job at Redlands. And uh, Spencer's a young man with a tremendous skill set, uh, uh, thought very, very highly of, uh, been successful in their family operation, 
in the judging uh, uh, career as well, starting out. So looking forward to Spencer doing that. We've got uh, two ladies of the Lone Star judging on the heifer side of things. Uh, we've got uh, Sheremy Vitor and Terry Barber, both from Texas, and again, both rich in uh, family traditions and uh, great skill sets, and so we're very excited to have all those people come and judge. If you can't attend, is there a way to still see the event? There sure is. Walton Webcasting has uh, been a staple for Hoosier Beef Congress for a good while. I think, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first livestock shows that they actually did, and any of you that have watched Walton Webcasting, it's just, uh, I mean, we uh, like Matt said, we want you there. But if you want to sit around the house in your house slippers, you can get a, a front row view of what's going on at Hoosier Beef Congress. Well, they do an excellent job. The nice thing is, if you go back through the barns, people have got Walton Webcasting oh, yeah. up, seeing the shows and helping them uh, keep on track and, and know where the, the shows are at as well. Barry, thanks for stopping by Beef Monthly and talking about Hoosier Beef Congress. For more information about Hoosier Beef Congress, uh, take a look at the show notes uh, directly uh, below this video, and that will help you direct uh, to the websites in case you missed any during the conversation. This presentation was a production of the Animal Science Department at Purdue University.